As we continue to look together at the book of James, we are looking today at, uh, excuse me for all the rumblings, James chapter 1, verses 20 through 27. So I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn there with me, please, and read along as I read aloud from the Word of the Lord. James chapter 1, verses 20 through 27. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, he goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Over the past years, it seems that more and more fires in our country have been set by arsonists. Maybe it's just that uh, people are getting better at detecting these things and figuring out how they've been set. Maybe it's just that the news is reporting them. For whatever reason, it seems that we're hearing a lot more about arson fires. And as investigators are looking into this problem, they have with alarming frequency found that many of these times firefighters have been behind the set fires. The reason that many of them give, these renegade firefighters wanted the opportunity to fight fires and become heroes. And because they felt there weren't enough of such opportunities, they made the opportunities themselves. Now, it's a horrible thought to imagine that those whose job it is to protect lives and property would, for their own glory, endanger what they have promised to protect. As we look at this passage and look closely into our hearts, we see the seeds of such traitorous actions are present within each one of us as well. And in a much more serious realm, even than the burning down of homes, forests, and all of these other things around us. Because we find in examining ourselves in our, in our hearts, in our lives, in the light of this passage, <coughs> that there is an ever-present and grave spiritual danger for souls. <coughs> our souls. The danger of hypocrisy which can so easily make you and me content with our appearance, our actions, our attitudes. Our knowledge, for instance, of the Holy Scriptures, while we ignore the raging fires of disobedience to the Lord that we have set within our own hearts and our own lives. And so as we move on from the actions that we were charged to act out in the passage last week, the importance of being slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to get angry. Look with me at the importance of attitudes. 
what does my heart really think about these things that I'm considering doing or am doing? Because attitude determines how we face the Lord our God and how we look at the world around us and how we look even at our very own selves. We come to a sobering realization in verse 21, which is really a continuation of what we were studying this past week. But here's what comes at the end of the description of those actions that we are to put into effect in our own lives. We realize through verse 21 that our hearts are full of what is called moral filth and what is called the evil that is so prevalent. In other words, there's a problem within us. It's not a problem in the world, although the world has this problem too. But first and foremost, you and I have a problem at home, in our own homes, our own hearts that we have to deal with. When is the last time you or I truly felt a sense of guilt and responsibility for something that was wrong? Can you remember a recent time remembering... Can you remember a recent time when you looked at something that had happened that was wrong in your life and you said to yourself, I did wrong. I did wrong. If you or I have a problem with this simple task, which is remembering a time when we can say, I did wrong, then we have a problem right at this very point. In accepting this verse which isn't saying some people have a problem with moral filth. It doesn't say, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent in everyone else. (laughs) Would that it would say that. And the evil that is so prevalent in him and her and everyone else but me. Get rid of it. Cast it out. Scourge it out. Beat it out of them. What it's saying is, you and I have got a problem. The evil is so prevalent, so commonplace, so frequent, always there in our own hearts. It's talking about a personal problem. Maybe you and I are used to seeing problems in our lives. By this I don't mean tires that go flat or things like that, but things where you realize there's sin involved in some way. Maybe you and I are used to seeing problems in our life Wrongs happening. But as we look at these things, we spend all our mental time and energy figuring out ways in which to blame other people for what is wrong. We try desperately, instead of accepting it and and doing what Harry Truman's sign said, the buck stops here, we try to pass the buck any place else we can. Maybe we're used to doing that. I recently heard this described as the baby boomer's condition. Nothing is my fault. Someone else is always to blame for everything. Now, I don't think as we look at how our passage describes this as a universal problem, that baby boomers alone can be blamed for this problem of saying everyone else is to blame. (coughs) According to our passage, everyone has this problem. We all have a tendency to blame other people and to find out, to figure out ways to say, hey, you know, I didn't do wrong. They're getting on me. It's their problem. They shouldn't be getting on me for this. I No, 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 no. Just everybody does this. 
that go back to one of the fundamental examples, I think, that, that, that tells constantly what our heart condition is like. And it's this. When you're speeding and get caught, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it when you're speeding and get caught? Is it the policeman's? Is it the hills? Is it the car in front of you? Or behind you? <clears throat> is it because someone expected you somewhere? And you were hurrying not to be late? We do the same sort of rationalizing in our spiritual lives. If we get caught or we see that things aren't just right, and someone catches us in it and we feel guilty, we say, oh no, I look bad. This isn't right, I look bad. We have the tendency to say, but they shouldn't have caught me. I'm just doing what's normal. It's not right for them to say I shouldn't do that. It's not my fault. We build ourselves and justify ourselves because we are ignoring the principle taught us so clearly in this passage. Which is that you and I need to be involved in doing actions that are good. Because it doesn't come naturally because evil is prevalent, commonplace, frequent in our very own hearts. We don't like to hear this. We do not like to accept it. I can remember the small handful of times when I've been encouraged in times past not to emphasize the fact that God's Word says people are sinful. The theory behind the suggestion that we are not to emphasize sin is this. <clears throat> if we emphasize sin, people will be turned off. They'll say, oh no, that's not me. I don't want to hear about that. Sin? Me? Those two things don't go together. <clears throat> and when people are turned off, they turn away. And what we need to be doing, the theory goes, is we need to be talking about good, nice things. Because good, nice, comfortable things are what people want to hear about. And that's the sort of thing that keeps people coming back for more. It's true. If any of us emphasize sin, and we point people to God's Word, and we emphasize the fact that God says in His Word that people and all people are sinful, <clears throat> people will be turned off. It will frequently dampen enthusiasm <clears throat> among people. But we also find in Scripture that if people will not come to grips with the realization that they are sinful, they are not ready to accept God and His Word anyhow at that point in their lives. And that, as you see in this passage, is where you and I need to be. Because it takes a knowledge of our inability to be righteous and to do good in our own power so that we will turn to God and say, I cannot do it myself. I need God. If we won't accept our sinfulness, then we will not turn to anyone for help. If we won't accept the fact that there is a problem, it's just like going to the doctor or finding a leak in your home. If you aren't willing to see that there's a leak, <clears throat> then you're never going to get someone to fix the leak because you ignore the fact that it's there. If you don't see that there's a problem in your body, you wake up every morning and you can't open your eyes, who knows what. If you're not willing to acknowledge these sorts of things, then you won't go to a doctor. And if you will not acknowledge sin, then you never will turn to God. What is the cure for, <clears throat> for this? 
A cure for the condition of sinfulness is the humble acceptance of God's Word. Now, what do we see about the humble acceptance of God's Word? It's told to us in the latter part of verse 21. Humbly accept the Word planted in you which can save you. Now, I know I'm sort of going through this on a verse-by-verse or portion of verse-by-verse basis, but that's the way we're taking it at this point. What do we see here about God's Word that we are to humbly accept? We see that it has been planted within us. And the fact that it has been planted within us and there is a germ, a seed of God's Word and the need to accept it growing within us is what will grow up to the point where we accept God through His Word. It's a Word that leads to salvation. And when we accept the fact that that has been planted in us, we realize that there's a planter. Seeds do not plant themselves. God is the one who plants His Word in us to accept it. And this is a word that leads to salvation. As you look at the reference to this word planted in you which can save you, notice carefully that it is the word that has the power, the ability, the strength, the authority to save. You and I don't have that strength ourselves, and we must never forget this. The strength to be saved does not come in our doing these actions some of which we've talked about in the earlier verses beginning with verse 19. Strength to be saved comes from God and the power that He invests in His Word. This past week I was talking with Cassie and we got into some sort of discussion. She was telling me something about the devil and so I was explaining to Cassie who Satan the devil is. At the same time, I read her the story from Acts in which Herod appeared before the people and he gave a speech and they flattered him by saying, this is not the voice of a man, but of a God. And Herod in his heart said, yeah, I like that. I am a God. (laughs) And what we read in the passage, you know, I like laughs like that. Immediately, Acts 12, verse 23, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and the picturesque part of the story, he was eaten by worms and died. Now that's a pretty grim story and that's a pretty grim ending and it happened fast. And as we were talking about this, talking about Satan, talking about Herod and Herod's end, It struck me how Herod did exactly the same thing Satan did. Because Herod got into his mind when people said, Oh, this is the voice of a God. He said to himself, Yeah, that sounds like me. God, Herod. (laughs) And then Satan got it into his mind, the same thing, when he was an angel of light in heaven. He said, I think I can do a better job than God can. I'll make a pretty good God, won't I? And the rest of the angels who were his group, they said, Yes, you will. Yes, you will. And what happened? Well, both of them came to an end. Satan is living without God, condemned throughout eternity to be absent from God, to fight God, and condemned to hell, 
for eternity. And Herod died a natural death, and you can be, well, not a natural death, an immediate death. Died, physical, a physical death, that's the expression. And you can be sure he went to hell. <clears throat> There's a tendency in us to continue the same pattern and process. <clears throat> a tendency to be proud and consider ourselves worthy of honor, rather than that we need to honor and worship God alone. <clears throat> it's a very dangerous thing, as we see from these two accounts. <clears throat> and so, as you and I look at this and realize that it says the Word leads to salvation in our hearts, we must not ever get confused and think to ourselves, no, I can do it. I alone am going to accomplish whatever I set out to do. And one of those things I'm going to set out to do is make it into heaven. Because as we see, when human beings set pride up and think that they are going to take God's place, there's trouble. <clears throat> Our response to God's word must begin someplace. And the place for it to begin is through listening. In verse 22... We read this. Do not merely listen to the Word. <clears throat> what this means to us is that if we have a real interest in the Lord, we are paying attention to Him by listening to Him. Now, as we read this here, it obviously doesn't mean to us that if we are reading God's Word, we aren't listening. The verb used is listen. But if we think about the time in which this is written, we realize everybody didn't have Bibles. And so the way in which most people came to grips with God's Word is through listening to it in the synagogue, for instance, or at this point in time, in the church gatherings. <clears throat> we might be tempted to pass this reference to listening to the Word by. Because it is only given to us at this point... As an aside, do not merely listen to God's Word, but do it. Okay, well, I need to be doing God's Word. And we completely jump over that part that says, do not merely listen. We cannot jump over that. Because in the lives of so many Christians today, there is a complete lack of listening to God's Word going on in any of its forms. <clears throat> People don't read their Bibles. We all have them, but we don't all read them and we don't all read them like we ought to. <clears throat> For whatever reasons, some of the believers say they don't understand the Bible, so that keeps them from reading it. That should be all the more reason to read and reread. Diligently applying yourself in order to get to the point where you do understand it. If we applied ourselves to God's Word like we apply ourselves to those things which are our hobbies we would have mastered great portions of it. In the many times past, people had large chunks of Scripture memorized so that they could read it or listen to it any time they wanted throughout their daily walk. <clears throat> but that isn't all. Many of us do not read God's Word or listen to it because we're too busy. <clears throat> what those of us who are too busy to read Scripture need to realize is that none of our work, even if we're doing what we call God's work, none of our work is blessed unless God blesses it, and we are missing His blessing when we avoid His instruction. 
Also, we need to realize that if our business keeps us away from God's work, then either we have a serious problem because we are not prioritizing as we should be, or we don't belong in that business. Now, these are things that you and I need to realize. Because as we look here, we find this passage telling us so clearly that it's God's word that saves us. And yet we have our occupations. All of those things that are important to us, we set them up as priorities. And what we find in our scripture passage here is the only thing really that matters is what is going to save me. What is going to save me? We may have 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years to live here on this earth. But when that time is gone, it will be as nothing because eternity comes after that point. And that is when we need saving. That is when salvation, when the effects of salvation take their effect and we can feel them in all reality. It's not that it doesn't mean anything today, but that is when we will realize to the full extent just how much we needed saving. And so as you and I go around and we look at our lives and we look at what, is, what we have set up as our priorities, we need to realize that God's Word right here is telling us priority number one is being saved. We need God's power saving us so that we are certain of eternity. <clears throat> Nothing else counts with regard to that. <clears throat> now we realize also, as we go to this, I'm stopping at listening, but that is just the first part of the passage. Listening isn't enough. Listening isn't enough. It's not enough that you have your radio tuned to WMIT or WHCB all day long, every day. And it's going in one ear and it's percolating around. It's not enough that you've got scripture memory cards or tapes playing. It's not enough that you've got the Bible by your bedside table and you read it in the morning and you read it at night. It's not enough that you go to church and you listen to God's Word. It's not enough that you're involved in Bible studies. Now, I mean, you can just imagine a person who eats, sleeps, and breathes God's Word. That isn't enough. We must must go, go beyond hearing to obedience. And that's what this is all about. You and I must be up and doing. As surely as we know something about Scripture, we must do something about it. We must put it into effect. Put it into action. And as Randy prays in the invocation when, when he's assisting in the service, one of the parts that he usually adds and emphasizes is the fact that, that we might not just hear, but we might go forth and walk it out. Live out what we hear from God's Word. <clears throat> How many of us know the message behind the story of the Good Samaritan? How many know the story of the Good Samaritan? Okay, know the story of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> That's great. We know the message of the story of the Good Samaritan. But here comes the kicker. Even more importantly, since you and I know that the message of the Good Samaritan is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and our neighbors, as that story so clearly includes, our enemies, then you and I need to think of the last time, recent memory, 
that we put into practice loving our neighbor as ourselves. When? When? Go through your mind. Think of a time. Do you remember a time this past week? Do you know the story of the prodigal son? What did the father do when the prodigal son returned home? Yeah. Celebrated. He was waiting for him. He ran out to greet him. He wrapped him in his arms. He hugged him and he said, Put the best clothes on him and kill the fatted calf and let's have a celebration because my son who was lost has returned. That's the message. In keeping with this passage then, when last did we demonstrate the Father's love for the lost? When last did we have a heart that was yearning like the Father's was? Going out and standing in the road, waiting for that prodigal son to return home. When last did you and I show compassion for someone turning to the Lord, not a mean spirit of jealousy and protectionism as the older brother demonstrated? Can you think of a time recently when you reached out your hand in love to a friend who does not know Christ? A time when you reached out your hand to a friend who doesn't know Christ. We know the story, but what is hitting us over the head in this passage is knowing is not enough. The mirror illustration, the title of this message is in verses 23 and 24. This illustration goes to great lengths to tell us that any person who is foolish enough to go to a mirror to look at how they look, looks at themselves very carefully, and turns and walks away, forgetting immediately how they look, is foolish indeed. You think of going to a mirror, for instance, after you've just eaten... some sort of messy meal like spaghetti or pizza or something like that. And if you go to the mirror, usually if you you have a wife, you don't need a mirror. (laughs) Or if you have a husband, you don't need a mirror. Have I got pizza on me? Or they'll tell you before you ask, which is even better still. But if you don't have that luxury, then you go to a mirror and you look at the mirror, and if you've got it all over the side of your face... And you look at it and say, oh, i got peach there. Ooh, tomato sauce. Ooh, that looks terrible. And I've got to go to an important meeting. And you turn around, walk away. Put on the clothes, go to the meeting. And everybody's looking at you like this. Now that's the example that's being pointed out to us in this mirror illustration. We would be stupid people indeed. We wouldn't even think of looking in a mirror other than to say, what's the problem and how can I straighten it out? What's the problem? How can I fix it? As we look in a mirror, that is the purpose. It's the same purpose in God's Word. (coughs) But how are we to look at God's Word? (coughs) How are we to look at it? We find that we are to inspect it. To inspect it. (coughs) Now, Fred Lord is an inspector for Bristol Compressors. And I've talked to him from time to time about what he does over there. And and he enjoys his work. And he's not mean-spirited about it at all. But his job is to look at the product that comes off of all those machines and to say, does it fit the tolerances? And so he looks at it with all of his calipers and gauges and all these sorts of things. 
And I think he uh, sort of enjoys it a little bit when he can drop one back. <laughs> no, no, don't tell him I said that. But he looks at it and he says, does this fit the standard? And when he inspects it, he looks very carefully. That's why they have an inspector. Because the people who are doing the job are just busy doing the job. Do the job, next one, next one, here, there, everywhere. But the inspector is the one who looks at it carefully to see, how does this really look? Does it fit what we're looking for? That's why our passage says that we need to look at God's Word intently, inspecting it, examining it, to see, what does this say about me? Not just, oh, that's a nice story, go on to the next one. But what is there here that I need to know about? There is an intentionality and there is a a close inspection nature that we need to take with us when we come to God's Word. How can you and I tell if we are looking at God's Word intently? I think the next point is very clear and very important. The next step. Those who have paid close attention to God's Word will remember what they've read and heard and the lessons that need to be learned and applied. Those who have looked intently will remember. Those who have not looked intently will say, Oh gosh, Lord, I don't remember any of that. <clears throat> the other day I was reading a magazine article and Sandy was telling me something about the house or one of the children or something. And she said, and it was this big. And then she said to me, how big did I say it was? <laughs> well, you got me there. I don't know. Because <laughs> I wasn't looking. When we don't remember, that means we haven't looked intently. <clears throat> we are to remember what we see and we learn. Memory is essential. Verse 25 tells us that. that you and I, as we look at God's Word, are not to forget what we have heard. We are not to forget it. We are to remember it. Memorizing Scripture, I believe, is a key. And it's a key in many things. My, my, My job is to say, what does God's Word say? And the thing that I am ever thankful for is I don't have to get up here and say, this is what I do, you do it too. Because there are often times when I come to God's Word and I'm looking at it and looking at it with you, and as I study it and go through it, I say, oh boy, I'm glad I'm proclaiming God's Word rather than Nathan's Word. Because if I were proclaiming Nathan's Word, I'd be like the wizard of Id. In the, in the, the commander of the, of the army who says, I never tell the men to do something that I haven't already done. We come to God's Word and we say, what does God's Word say? And it convicts me as frequently as it convicts any of us. Memorizing Scripture is a key. What are helps to to remembering? Taking notes of what you've learned. Learning Scripture songs. Putting verses to music yourself, if that's an interest. Gail Muller has been listening to music tapes of Scripture verses, which I've mentioned before in the service. She or I can point you to where you can get these. There are many different publishers who put out different sets of Scripture memory verses on cards. Very convenient. Keep them in the car, keep them anywhere. 
the Navigators, for instance, have a scripture memory system that you can buy in any good Christian bookstore. What are hindrances to memorizing and remembering? No time for quiet and reflection. Always got to have the radio on and music going. Too many other things to do. No conception of the value of memorizing and mulling over scripture and scriptural principles. And frequently we don't have any time because the kids need to go to this event or that game, because the house needs cleaning, because it's been a long time since I've been to see a good movie, because there's a good game to watch or someone I need to call. Other hindrances to remembering Scripture are no in-depth perusal of God's Word. And how do we avoid God's Word? By avoiding biblical teaching, by avoiding things such as Sunday school, by not taking advantage of the fact that there are Christian radio stations, by getting by on the bare minimum of church sort of activities, by failing to read the Bible for ourselves, even only sticking, for instance, I think the the daily devotional books are helpful, but if that is the extent of our feeding from God's Word, then it's better than nothing, but just a little better than nothing. Because frequently those one or two verse devotional booklets they are helpful but they are no substitute for real scripture reading and study let's continue to look at and finish this passage next week let's remember that God is telling us through this passage how we can walk in true holiness not walk around being fakes but walk in a way so that as we look at the mirror which is God's word that we leave that mirror and the reflection that comes from us is the reflection of Christ found in His Word. So that when other people see us, they say, that man, that woman, that child has been looking in God's Word and that person reflects Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that You would help us to reflect Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives. That we might be holy in every way that we might be pleasing to you. The people might praise you as a result of seeing our lives and the way in which they glorify you and your goodness. We ask that you would accomplish this end in our hearts, Lord, that we would never come to your word and ignore what we have learned in it, but instead that we would take from it a memory of what you have told us, and that we would take that memory of it from the place where we learned it, put it into effect and practice as quickly as possible and continue to put it into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.